and welcome to So What You're Saying Is, I'm Peter Whittle. Now, if you watch other channels like this, you'll be very familiar with our guest today, or indeed if you're active on social media, because he has a huge following there. Professor Gad Saad is an evolutionary psychologist. He's the author of many books, including The Consuming Instinct. His most recent book, which was out last year, is The Parasitic Mind, how infectious ideas are killing common sense. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, Gert. Thank you. Um, it's such a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Before uh, we talk about your book, uh, there is something else you're known as. I think you brought it up yourself, which is the granddaddy of trigger. Is this right? <laughs> of, of triggering? Yes. <laughs> well, but I don't. I don't try to do it on purpose. It's just that uh, I speak the truth, and it triggers people. What can I do? <laughs> um, with the book, uh, the parasitic mind, um, and you know how infectious ideas are killing common sense. Um, I think that say maybe a lot of people watching this will have a good idea what you mean by that. But can we start by saying, well, first of all, common sense. Do we mean, what is common sense? Is it a conservative thing, or is it a left-wing thing, or is it neither of those things? It, it should be an apolitical thing. There's, there are truths out there that we can all agree on. We all come into the world with an understanding of folk biology, folk physics, and regrettably, many of the idea pathogens that I discuss in the book, which, if you'd like, we'll, we'll talk about you know several of them in greater detail, reject reality. So for example, if you take postmodernism, it rejects the possibility that there is a universal truth, yeah. that there's an objective truth. Everything is shackled by subjectivity. Everything is shackled by our personal biases. So many of these idea pathogens by the, the actual structure that they espouse uh, are anti-science, anti-common sense, anti-reason. And so I've been fighting these idea pathogens for well over two decades and hopefully we can turn the ship around. It's, uh, again, all this, this sort of uh, issue of, of common sense. As I, I mean, I, you say it shouldn't be a, uh, shouldn't be a kind of uh, political thing, but you know, there is a sort of view here at least. I think, I think Margaret Thatcher once said, the facts of life are conservative. Uh, I, think, <laughs> I think most people here would sort of, would take it to mean that sort of, things that are empirically obvious are somehow or other being uh, jettisoned. But um, the point I really wanted to ask you about this uh, is, is that isn't the actual, you, you talk about there's no verifiable truth, but isn't the actual statement of saying that proof of the sheer absurdity of the notion? I mean... Exactly. But this the, the, the starting tenet of postmodernism already shatters the, the edifice of, of lunacy. Yeah. Uh, but to, to, to go back to your earlier question about is it, is it conservative or is it you know, uh, progressive and so on, the idea pathogens that I discuss in the book actually are all of them espoused by the left. Right. Now, that's not because leftists can be parasitized by bad ideas, whereas uh, you know, conservatives are always, you know, perfect vehicles of reason. It's because I exist in the ecosystem of the university. And regrettably, the university environment is exactly where intellectuals espouse all sorts of dumb ideas. I always remind people it takes intellectuals to come up with really imbecilic ideas. Yes. And so whether it be postmodernism or cultural relativism or social constructivism, all of these uh, bad ideas have historically been espoused by the left. I see. 
Um, okay, so we have common sense, but when you talk about infectious ideas, I mean, infectious, the, the, you know, they sound, it sounds sort of opportunistic. These things sound opportunistic. Is that a correct way of putting it? Right. So I'd like to draw maybe a distinction between uh, your, uh, your fellow countryman, uh, the great Richard Dawkins, who introduced yeah. the concept of the meme, yeah. right? In 1976, in his book, The Selfish Gene, he talks about the meme as the cultural analog to the gene. And so in the same way that genes can propagate, memes can propagate. I could start singing a jingle, you hear me singing it, you start singing it. So yeah. my meme, that jingle, has now infected your brain and you're singing it. In my case, when I the reason why I use parasitic, right, uh, rather than just memes, is because memes have no valence. Memes can be positively valence, neutral. They could be negatively valence. Whereas a parasitic idea pathogen truly results in deleterious consequences to to those who espouse it. So I use the framework of neuroparasitology. So. A neuroparasite in the animal kingdom is a actual brain worm that when it parasitizes the brain of the host, causes it to behave in maladaptive ways. So take, for example, Toxoplasma gondii. It's a neuroparasite that when a, a mouse is infected with this parasite, it loses its innate fear of cats and it becomes sexually attracted to the cat's urine. Good Lord. Well, that's not a very good preference to hold if you're a mouse. <laughs> and so I argue, so to analogize, I argue that these idea pathogens are exactly parasitic in that they slowly lead us to the abyss of infinite lunacy while we're humming along our idiotic ideological viewpoints. I see. You know, you, you, uh, made a, a, a metaphor recently when you were talking to Jordan Peterson, actually very recently, and I, which I looked at and I thought it was fascinating. I wonder whether you could describe it for us again. You talk about the, uh, the spider wasp and how it, you, this was a great metaphor for what your, is it right to say the theme of your book actually? Yes, yes. That, well, thank you for asking that question. So the spider wasp will look for a much larger spider, which it very astutely stings with, with, with its spider sting, rendering the uh, spider completely zombified. So it carries it to its burrow, lays an egg, and in vivo, while the spider is fully alive but zombified, the egg hatches and then starts eating this, you know, hapless poor spider. Well, I argue that for, for example, political correctness is akin to the spider wasp's sting because it zombifies us into staying quiet while we are led to the abyss of infinite lunacy, while we are uh, you know, taught that up is down and left is right. Don't say a word, shut up and listen, yeah. and all will be okay. And so in that sense, I think it's a very powerful way to demonstrate the reticence that so many people are unwilling to speak out even, you know, and not believe their lying eyes. The problem with that, uh, Gad, or I say not the problem, but uh, the, the depressing conclusion is that the spider dies, doesn't it? <laughs> the spider dies. And if we continue on this path, our great Western societies will, will also die. Now, sometimes people say, but aren't you being hyperbolic, Professor? I mean, do you really believe? Well, when I, when I, offer such a prognosis or when I when I predict such a downfall, 
I'm not suggesting it's going to happen by next Tuesday. It might take 50 years. It might take 100 years. It might take 500 years. But if you start eradicating the foundational bedrock values that make these beautiful societies what they are, eventually they will falter, as we've seen throughout history. And in a sense, I come at this not only as a, an academic of 27 years now, but as someone who escaped the Middle East, right? So in chapter one of the parasitic mind, the reason why I go into uh, some detail about my personal history as Lebanese Jews who escaped Lebanon and so on is because I know what other societies look like around the world. Westerners think that the enlightened societies that we've lived in is the default value of humanity, whereas in reality, it's completely anomalous what we have in the West. And so it often takes someone like me who has experienced the other range of buffets of societies yes. to heed the warning. You mentioned there about leaving Lebanon. How old were you when you, you left? So uh, I when the Civil War started when I was 10 years old and I was there until I was 11. So I was so we, we were in the first year of the Civil War, which broke out in 1975. Yeah. Uh, we were part of the last, you know, steadfastly refusing to leave Lebanon Jews because, you know, the the the, the reality in the Middle East is that it became increasingly more precarious to be Jewish in, in Arab lands. And so the same thing happened in Iraq and in Egypt and in Syria and, and all of the countries that, quote, historically had been tolerant and progressive, progressive by Middle Eastern standard. Uh, it became very, very difficult to be Jewish. And Lebanon, if you'd like, was probably the last place where there was a somewhat active Jewish community. Yes. Once the war broke out, it was impossible to stay and we had to flee. So you fl fled. And then what, you, what happened then? I mean, where, where did you go? So we went to Canada uh, in part because uh, Lebanon was at one point a French protectorate. Yeah. So Arabic is my mother tongue, but we also, and certainly the educated class would, would speak French. And so Montreal, given that it is also, I mean, bilingual, both French and English, looked like an attractive place. My mother had a sister who had emigrated to Canada uh, years earlier. And so it seemed like a reasonable place for us to go. Israel was some a place that my dad was very keen on going, not my mother as much because uh, we would then have to serve in the Israeli military. As you may or may not know, there is mandatory service, three years for yes. men, two years for women. Now, the irony would have been that had, we, had my father won that argument and had we moved to Israel, then when Israel invaded Lebanon in 1982, I would have been the first commando yeah. in the front line because yeah. I would have been of exactly the right age, 17, 18, and an Arabic speaker and a guy who left Lebanon. Uh, so in that sense, I'm, I'm thankful that my mother won the argument despite the poor weather of Montreal. What was the academic world like, God, when you sort of began in it? I mean, you said you're 27 years standing academic. You know, when you look at it now, and I mean, I assume that it's just basically much more restrictive than maybe it once was. Right, exactly. So, you know, I started seeing the, the, the lunacy that I discussed in The Parasitic Mind. I first experienced it not so much as a cultural critic, but as a practicing academic, because my field of scientific interest is the application of evolutionary biology yeah. and evolutionary psychology in the study of consumer behavior. And so... My goal has been in my scientific career is to 
if I can use it as a verb, to Darwinize the business school. In other words, the idea is that you can't study financial trading or behavioral economics or organizational behavior or consumer behavior completely bereft of an understanding of the biological forces that impact us the way that obviously they do. And so I first started seeing the lunacy and the departure from reason when I saw many of my social science colleagues look at me as you know a heretical monster because what are you talking about, Dr. Saad, biology? Biology is only relevant for the mosquito yeah. and for the zebra and for the dog, but don't you dare use biological arguments to explain consumer behavior. We are a cultural animal. Well, yes, we are a cultural animal, but we're also a biological art animal. And so I started very quickly seeing within the walls of academia that there was forbidden knowledge, you know, be careful if you step on sex differences research, or at least make sure that the findings come out the right way, yeah. because otherwise you're a misogynist Nazi. If you study race differences or cultural differences, then prepare for your career to be over. And so that reflex of there was some stuff that you shouldn't study, even though you have zero misogyny in your in your bones, you have zero racism, you're just an inquisitive academic who wishes to go wherever the interesting problems lie, you quickly learn that there were some things that you should veer from. And as often happens, the, the, the reflexes that begin in the university make their way downstream to the rest of the world, in politics, in HR departments, in culture, in Hollywood, in journalism. And so now we've, we have an expansion of what we are forbidden to say or think or research or write about. It's grotesque, it's disheartening, especially for someone like me who comes from the Middle East. Yes. So basically, it, that was there, say like 27 years ago, but essentially, you know, it's come on in, in spades. I mean, is, isn't that the case? That, and I, I wondered as well on this point, obviously you're in the academic world and it is the pressure would therefore come from the left as it were, uh, but, but there is something different about these new people, is there not? I mean, you know, it's almost like a more like a cultural totalitarianism, isn't it? It is. It is. I, I, I analogize it, I compare it to, uh, uh, say, take ISIS, right? Yeah. And again, not to be hyperbolic, but the, 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 the fascist impulse is the exact same without necessarily having the same, you know, violence. ISIS kills or has killed in the past they're no longer sort of a functioning group but uh, isis kills muslims in the greatest numbers right and they kill other muslims because they're not muslim enough right so you turn inward right it's orgiastic self-cannibalism and so what these cultural fascists do is exactly the same thing right uh, to, to to point to another person from your neck of the wood J.K. Rowling is a, was an icon of progress, progressivism until she dared say something that was horrifying, right? And I'm being here fully sarcastic, where she dared say that, oh, what do we call these people that menstruate? Oh, I know, they're called women. Yeah. And for saying that, she suddenly became indistinguishable from Himmler, right? Yeah. She was a practicing Nazi. And so this is what happens with these puritanical ideological movements, once you can't metaphorically kill the enemy, you turn inward and kill all those who are not as progressively pure as you are. Yes. It is actually a, a form, it, it, it has a depressing influence, doesn't it, on, on the personal mind. I mean, I, you know, you talk about J.K. Rowling there, I, I just felt this myself. 
Yesterday, uh, there was a case of an artist who just got a new exhibition uh, at Tate Britain here in London. And ref all the way through the PR blurb, um, she's referred to as they and themselves and their art. And, and uh, Gad, I sort of actually felt, I mean, for once it was like 1984, I actually felt you will not somehow suppress my common sense. You will not suppress my mind. Well, and that's, I mean, if you, you, you earlier mentioned uh, my, my recent chat with uh, Jordan Peterson, yeah. of course, Jordan was catapulted into, you know, the public conscience uh, because of his position on gender pronouns. Now, I know Jordan very well. He's a good friend of mine. He, he has zero bigotry or, or any darkness in his heart. His position was a general principle, which is the, the notion of compelled speech is a very dangerous one. Both Jordan and I appeared in front of the Canadian Senate in 2017, in my case, to, to speak about uh, a bill that at that point hadn't passed into law. It was called Bill C-16 that, that sought to incorporate gender identity and gender expression under the rubric of, of hate, you know, hate crimes and hate speech and so on. And my position was, again, being able to extrapolate using the proverbial slippery slope it wasn't that I was arguing, oh, come on, let's be mean to transgender people or transgender people don't exist. I'm very socially liberal in recognizing the, the importance of all people living free of institutionalized bigotry. But my point was that beware of the tyranny of the minority, right? Uh, I am an evolutionary psychologist who studies sex differences. So if I apply Darwin's theory of sexual selection and I talk about male and female phenotypes, Will a transgender student say, well, wait a minute, uh, that was transphobic because you're using antiquated fixed binaries to quote a term from Harvard. And so I wasn't arguing that we shouldn't be kind and uh, proper when addressing all people. Of course we should. And same thing with Jordan. He's not arguing that if a student came up to him and said, I'd prefer to be addressed as such, he wouldn't acquiesce. But he was arguing, and so am I, that it shouldn't be the government's role to be coming in and monitoring what I or you say you know, to, to, to different people. That is a form of Orwellian nightmare. It's interesting you talk about the government there. You see, we've reached a stage here on our campuses where there's so much concern about restrictions in freedom, not just in the academic world, you know, the actual academia, but also among students and people who they can hear. Uh, that in fact the government has stepped in. I mean, it's almost as though uh, the, the universities cannot be trusted to kind of regulate themselves anymore. What's your view on that? Do you, do you think that that would work? Do you think it works? Well, I mean, one of the ways by which the government can intervene would be to say, if you create, for example, free speech zones on university campuses, uh, you're not, or if you deplatform people, you're not going to get government funding. Yeah. Now, what, let, me, let me point to the earlier example. Uh, FIRE, the acronym is Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, is a is a wonderful organization in the United States. Although I'm 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 in Canada, that's that fights for uh, the First Amendment rights of students on campuses. And so many of the suits that they file are typically of the following form. The, some university, University X says, you're allowed to speak freely, but in this particular quadrant of the arts quad. But what do you mean? Isn't that antithetical to the First Amendment? Isn't the entire campus, isn't the entire country one free speech zone? 
And so one of the ways I think that courageous governments can enact change would be to say, we're going to be so vociferous and vigorous in our defense of freedom of speech that if we see universities engaging in any actions that intrude on that fundamental right, there goes your funding. And let me tell you, administrators listen to nothing more or nothing as much as the potential removal of the big dollars. They don't care about GATSAD's uh, positions and argumentation. But if I threaten you that there goes your money, you'll pay attention. Right. But what do you think is the, you know, the chance, the possibility of them making that position? Uh, in other words, when I look at the kind of uh, government in this country and certainly the Conservative Party, they seem to have a timidity about their approach to these things. You know, this is the problem, is it not? You know, they've got to have confidence in what they're actually saying. No, I mean, t timidity is a very polite and uh, diplomatic term that you use. I think they are, they are castrated cowards. How about I be less diplomatic than you, right? Yeah. Uh, this is precisely why in Chapter 8 of The Parasitic Mind, I, one of the calls to action that I implore people to take seriously is what I refer to as activating your inner honey badger. And the reason why I use that imagery is because the honey badger is an extraordinarily ferocious and fierce animal. It is the size of a small dog, and yet it could withstand an attack of four, five, six adult lions. Well, how could that be possible? Because it is extraordinarily fierce. The lions look at it and say, you know what? There's an easier meal out there somewhere else. Let, let's move on because this guy appears to be completely nuts. Yes. Well, I argue that you have to be an ideological honey badger. I don't mean ideological in the sense of dogmatic. What I mean is that if you have a set of positions that can be well-reasoned, well-defended, well-articulated, then never back down. People often say, well, how come it appears that you're uncancelable, Professor Saad? Well, because I'm a honey badger. If you come after me, you better not miss because I'm going to come after you. I'm going to come after your ancestors. I'm going to come after your dead ancestors, metaphorically speaking, because I have the self-assuredness of my convictions. Now, I also have epistemic humility, which means that if you were to ask me a question that I simply don't feel sufficiently knowledgeable enough to answer, I would be the first to say, you know what, I, I simply haven't thought about this enough, so let me get back to you on this one. Yeah. So when I don't know, I don't know, but when I know, I walk with the full self-assuredness of you know, believing in my convictions. And governments, as you correctly pointed out, even those that should be on the correct side of the issue are too tepid, too timid, too cowardly to take the proper positions. When it comes to your own discipline of being an evolutionary psychologist, I mean, isn't, isn't that really pretty much on the front line? You did allude to it before, but isn't it pretty much on the front line of all the things that could get you cancelled? I mean, you know, you're talking about, as you said, if, if it's sexual differences in, in, in decision making, things such as that. I mean, you are in a very, very sort of tough area, are you not? I am. And, and, and this is why, I mean, in a sense, to, to have been able to navigate the way that I have throughout my academic career and in my public engagement really required for me to have the specific personality that I have, right? It, it wasn't enough. Like, you could replace me by someone else who may have had the exact same knowledge as me, but if they didn't come with the honey badger attitude, then they wouldn't have been able to survive the endless minefields where you could be canceled, right? And as I said earlier, it, it all really started. I mean, if I showed you 
some of the uh, letters that I would receive from editors when I would submit some really rigorous scientific journal where they were flabbergasted by the pseudoscience of evolutionary psychology. And, you know, you're a smart guy, Professor Saad. What are you wasting your time with this, you know, phrenology, right? I mean, it's, it's quackery. It's racist Nazism. Yeah. Well, it's an insane position to take. I mean, how else do you think that the human mind came to be other than through the forces of evolution, yeah. right? This is what I basically call the uh, above-the-neck deniers, right? Or what I call the flat earthers of the human mind. They're perfectly willing to accept that everything about us has evolved through evolution, but it stops at the neck. Yeah. Somehow, the fundamental organ that defines our personhood, which is our minds, was made out of magic, right? It, it somehow bypassed evolution. And so it's nonsensical. And hopefully, because science is autocorrective, the good ideas will win out in a Darwinian process. So I'm still here and hopefully never to be canceled. <laughs> um, well, never say never. But uh, I think uh, with, can I just go back to our spider for a minute? Um, sure. And the fact that the you know, uh, the spider sort of eventually dies. But you talked before that about it being zombified um, by the sting of the parasite. Um, to carry that metaphor on, are we currently zombified? I mean, how far along the line are we? Gert? Oh, we, we, we are, uh, if I'm going to be optimistic, we are one inch away from jumping into the abyss of lunacy. If I'm going to be less optimistic, we're already in free fall. Right. Because, you know, you see it on a daily basis. So I receive, I mean, I really couldn't, you know, I couldn't tell you how many emails I receive in a given day from students, from faculty members, from parents of students who have lost their sense or their compass of sense making yeah. because they no longer understand what they're allowed to say, what they're allowed to think. I mean, Am I allowed to say that only women menstruate or is that going to send me to Gulag 13? So imagine how far you must be on your way to the abyss of infinite lunacy where a grown adult doesn't have the necessary uh, points of you know, reference to be able to be sufficiently confident in stating that whether it's women who menstruate only or not. The, the reason why I use this example because it is such a trivially obvious answer right only women menstruate but by the way I, I don't know if i do i have time to give you an example of course of, you do yeah thank you so many years ago because i'm going to speak to the point i'm, I'm going to answer in a sense your question of how far along are we right well in in 2002 i had been uh invited or, or had been asked by my then just graduating doctoral student who just defended his dissertation to go out to dinner, a celebratory dinner. It was myself, him, uh, my wife, and his date for the evening. I, I've recounted the story many times, and I recounted in the parasitic mind because it really captures the extent to which we are jumping off the abyss of infinite lunacy. Uh, he warned me prior to going out that evening that his his date for the evening was a graduate student in postmodernism, uh, radical feminism, and cultural anthropology yeah. which is basically the holy trinity of bs and so i and so basically the reason why he was telling me this is you know let's try not to have a heated conversation we're out to have fun and so i said oh yeah yeah i got you mum's the word i'm gonna be on my best behavior which of course was a false promise 
because about halfway through the the dinner, I decided to very gently, very politely, uh, you know, probe her. And so I asked her, I hear you're a postmodernist. There are no universal truths. Is that correct? She goes, yes, none. I said, okay, well, do you mind if I hit you with some, uh, what I consider to be universal truths, and then you could tell me how I'm strained? She goes, yes, go for it. Okay, is it not true that within Homo sapiens, within humans, only women bear children? Is that not a universal truth? And so she scoffed at my stupidity, at my, you know, idiocy. She said, absolutely not. I said, if it isn't true? She said, no. There is a tribe, a Japanese tribe off some Japanese island where in their folkloric, mythological realm, it is the men who bear children. So by you restricting the conversation to the biological realm, that's how you know you keep us barefoot and pregnant. So after I recovered from this lunacy, I then said, okay, well, let me take an example that might be a bit less controversial than saying that only women bear children. How about we use a cosmological example? Is it not true since time immemorial that sailors have relied on the premise that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. And so here she, here she used Jacques Derrida's deconstructionism. You deconstruct language. She said, what do you mean by east and what do you mean by west? And that which you call the sun, I, might, I call dancing hyena. And I said, okay, well, the dancing hyena rises in the east and sets in the west. And then she said, I don't play those label games. Why am I mentioning this? Because that was 19 years ago. Wow. She wasn't a person who escaped from a psychiatric institute. Yeah. She was a person who had escaped that day from a postmodernist department at a university setting. Yeah. So she was exactly aping that which 40, 50 years of generations have been taught in some disciplines within the university setting. So Justin Trudeau today, the prime minister of Canada, is a walking manifestation of every idea pathogen that I discuss in the parasitic mind. So how far along are we on the walk to being zombified uh, spiders? We're pretty far along. And if we don't turn it around, it's going to be over before you could say hello. Do you see, I mean, that is uh, chilling, but it's, it's so familiar. I mean, the story of the of your going after, it's, it's so familiar. I just want to ask before I, actually, I've got another question here. Uh, what's the motive? I actually thought very deeply about this issue because... I wanted to try to find, as I was writing about all these idea pathogens in the parasitic mind, is there something that is common across these idea pathogens? So very much in the way that an oncologist, right? I mean, uh, leukemia is different than uh, pancreatic cancer, which is different than uh, uh, you know brain cancer, but yet they all share at least one common mechanism, which is the unchecked you know uh, uh, division of cells, right? Uh, so I wanted to look for a similar commonality across these idea pathogens, and that's going to speak to your question of what is the motive. And so here's what I've come up with. Each of these idea pathogens start off with a noble objective and a kernel of truth, but then in the pursuit of that noble objective, it metamorphosizes into a complete departure from reason. So let me give you a concrete example. Equity feminism is a great idea. It basically says that there should be no institutional bigotry between men and women. There is no reason why a man should make more for an exact same job as a woman simply for, for, a fact, for the fact that he is a man and she's a woman. So Christina 
Huff Summers would be a classic example of an equity feminist. And if that's what feminism is, then I think you and I would probably agree that, hey, we're feminists too. Here's where the problem comes in. Radical feminists or militant feminists argue, well, no, 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 we can't stop there. In order to eradicate and smash the patriarchy and the status quo, we need to argue that men and women are indistinguishable because that allows us to achieve our ultimate objective, which again, starting off was a very laudable one. And so in the pursuit of a social justice goal, if we murder the truth, so let it be. No, I could chew gum and walk at the same time. I could be fully on board with supporting noble social justice goals without ever conceding one millimeter of the truth. And so I think if you look at all the idea pathogens, they all share this original good value that then metamorphosizes in nonsense. You see, I'm interested, you say that they do actually all share this kind of original, you know, basic good intention, maybe. Um, because I suppose that my approach really up would be that, you know, it's almost as though, in fact, various foundations of things that we've always considered to be good things, you have to destroy them from the inside because you're never going to do it from the outside. I mean, you well, know, it sounds a bit Gramsci and I know, but that's, that seems to me to have a, a lot of plausibility. Yes, so you're right. Uh, take, for example, social constructivism, another idea pathogen. Social constructivism basically says that everything is due to a social construct. So, the, uh, so no, nothing is due to possible individual differences between people, innate differences, right? So every child could have been the next Lionel Messi, right? Well, that's a hopeful message, right? I would love as a parent to believe that my child could be the next Lionel Messi or the next Albert Einstein. But the reality is that not all children are born with equal potentiality. But social constructivism then teaches me this message of hope. So again, in the service of having a kumbaya reality, I end up murdering truth. And therefore, I destroy reality from within. So you're exactly right. You mentioned, uh, you know, we're, we're edging closer and closer to the spider. You know, he's edging closer and closer. Um, do you see any, any blowback? I mean, the, more than anything else, you know, we discuss these issues on this channel a, a lot, God. And I mean, and obviously you, you talk about them a huge amount. Uh, more than any other, it's people saying either what do we do? Well, you've already told us what you do. You become a honey badger, right? But, but do you see any real sense of change or resistance other than so that? So is the fulcrum uh, moving in the opposite direction? That's your question? Yes. Yes. Uh, I would say in some areas, yes. So, for example, postmodernism uh, doesn't seem to me to have as much you know, enticing pull as it did, say, 15, 20 years ago. It's still there, but not quite as much. But uh, frankly, not really. I mean, if I look at all of the idea packages collectively, I still think we're on a, you know, really, really fast ride to hell. The, the fact that, for example, in the United States, again, even though I'm Canadian, the fact that in the United States, you have a party that's now in charge that openly supports identity politics, right? So exactly the phenomenon that I escaped from in Lebanon, right? Lebanon is exactly what happens to a society that is organized along identity politic lines. In, in, in the case of Lebanon, it's based on religious uh, allegiance, right? 
the constitution of Lebanon says the president has to be of that religion, the prime minister has to be of that religion. So I know what happens to a society when you push the identity politics uh, ethos to its logical conclusion. It's not a pretty sight. So to see now, you know, every nook and cranny of the West being parasitized by identity politics uh, is it doesn't afford me the uh, possibility to say to you that I'm optimistic. But here is, let me give you an optimistic message. The silent majority despises this stuff. Yeah, yeah. I know it because I receive all the thousands and thousands of you. As a matter of fact, even within the cesspool of academia, many academics will write to me from all disciplines. They're a oncology radiologist to a physicist to a humanities professor, and they will say, thank you, thank you, you keep me sane in academia, but please, please don't share my name if you read my email out loud on your show. And then I write back to them, oftentimes very coldly, and I say, your last sentence is the reason why we have this problem. Yeah. Thank you for your kind words. But So if you can't even have the courage to stand publicly next to me while you send me the email thanking me for having the courage, then I don't have a lot of optimism. But if everybody finds their spine and says, I've had enough, I don't want my young children to be... Uh, brainwashed by identity politics and critical race theory, uh, always cloaked under the robe of social justice, uh, and I'm going to fight against it, we will solve this problem by next Tuesday. If not, it will be a slow drag of the spider wasp down to its burrow. Well, um, let's hope, shall we? Um, God, thank you so much. By the way, you have a very successful uh, channel. Is it right? Is the... Uh the sad truth is that right? Exactly, it's the sad S A A D. So that's okay. that's my last name. So it's the sad truth. You can catch it either on my YouTube channel, and now I'm slowly migrating a lot of my inventory from my YouTube channel to a podcast for for people who just want to hear it rather than watch me deliver the stuff. Right. Uh, and you, so, so you can either do it on podcast or audiovisual. You can also follow me on Twitter at GatSad. Uh, and hopefully you'll check out the book, The Parasitic Mind. Yes, of course, The, the Parasitic Mind. So we, here's the cover of it again, uh, which of course is available. Well, every, everything's available on Amazon at the moment, isn't it? But um, look, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, and, and it's a look, an enviably sunny day there. I mean, so it's beautiful, you lucky thing. Uh, Except it's minus 27 with wind chill. Oh. So maybe you, maybe you shouldn't be quite so envious of me. Thank you very much. I do hope you join us again one day. Thank you very Anytime. much. Thank, Thank you. Much. Uh, that's it for uh, So What You're Saying is this week. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you next time. In the meantime, please do remember to subscribe, won't you? Thank you.